This is Sports in the 90s with your hosts, Dave Smith and Carlos Vega. I break bread with the Hennessy one. I feel that auto racing is an extremely boring sport visually. It's because you have one three shot. possible shots. Yeah. One shot is a pack of cars all going at once and right. you don't know what's happening. Right. The other shot is two cars jockeying for position. Right. The third shot is a close-up of the a driver. driver. And that's all they have to show. In this movie, it seemed as if Cruz's car spent most of the movie being scraped against the wall by another car. Right. I have watched a little stock car racing on television. I don't think that they spend all of their time trying to drive each other into the walls. But they do in this film, right. and it's based on the strategy. That was Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel discussing Days of Thunder, and this is the first ever double feature episode of Sports in the 90s, a 90 sports history podcast covering everything in the world of sports from January 1st, 1990 until December 31st, 1999. My name is Dave Smith, and alongside with me is Carlos Vega. What's up, dude? Yo, yo, yo. What is good, my friend? I'm ready to talk about some movies. Yeah, man, dude, we've, I've been waiting for this episode, and it's funny because the last one I realized, hey, man, we didn't even uh, talk about what we were going to do in the next one, and so I think it's only fitting that uh, this one is a double feature. I uh, am sporting the most race car thing that I have, my little uh, Bub City hat. Bub City. Bub Shout City. Oh, to... yeah, okay. Yeah, these are uh, Rocky hats Bob. from Bub City. It's got a little pig with a guitar on it. I see you're wearing your uh, your your red, white, and blue there. Yes. Got your Rocky uh, trunks, if you will. Yeah, I'm wearing a Dave Matthews Band shirt, but on top of the D of Dave is the hat like Apollo Creed wore in Rocky Four, And that's what we're going to be right talking on, about as well. Days of Thunder and Rocky Five, the two biggest sports movies of 1990. Nice. Yeah, summer blockbuster. Days of Thunder is uh, it's pretty fitting, man. We're in the summertime right now. Tom Cruise just uh, released Top Gun 2, uh, and yeah. that was another classic. I didn't get a chance to see it yet, did you? I, I didn't, man. No. no, I've been super busy. But, dude, I hear it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah I definitely intend to see it when it comes when it gets uh, available at home. But, dude, this movie, Days of Thunder, kind of follows a similar recipe, if you will. Right. Formula. The Tom to Cruise success. movie, as uh, Roger Ebert would put it, the nine points, he actually breaks it down. He, he mentioned it a little bit on the show, and uh, here he is talking about it. Another thing that was a little bit predictable about this film is it has the same structure, the same structure as Top Gun, The Color of Money, and Cocktail. Cruise is always the natively talented kid who's undisciplined. Right. There's always the older mentor. There's always the taller, wiser, more mature woman who brings him uh, into her emotional sphere and helps him to grow up emotionally. There's always the first bad guy who later becomes his friend and the second bad guy who's the real bad guy. And then apart from that, there's always the piece of equipment, whether it's a cocktail shaker, a pool <laughs> cue, a jet airplane, or a car. These four movies can make a nice little mat set. Yes, uh, Days of Thunder is an entertaining example of what we might as well call the Tom Cruise picture, since it assembles much of the same elements that worked in Top Gun, The Color of Money, and Cocktail, and runs them through the formula once again, as Roger Ebert breaks down further in his articles. Now, I'm, I'm a big fan of Roger Ebert as a writer, as a critic. There was nobody better, man. 
he's such a great writer. I mean, the guy won the Pulitzer, his first film critic to win a Pulitzer Prize. So, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. So, yeah. so he says, okay, now the ingredients are still effective. Now, they include the Cruz character, invariably a young and naive but naturally talented kid who could be the best if he ever could tame his rambunctious spirit. That is called Trickle, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, the mentor, an older man who has done it himself and has been there and knows the talent when he sees it and who is, has faith in the kid even when the kid screws up because his free spirit has gotten the best of him. That's Robert Duvall playing Harry Hodge. Three, the superior woman, usually older, taller, and more mature than the crew's character, who function as a mentor for his spirit. Well, the male mentor supervises his craft. That's Nicole Kidman's character. Totally. Right. Four, the craft, which the gifted young man must master, racing. Five, the arena in which the young man is tested, the racetrack, and the NASCAR circuit. Six, the arcana, consisting of the specialized knowledge and lore that the movie knows all about, and we get to learn, like mm-hmm. the whole racing lore, like Rubin is racing. Right. And many other notable quotes. The trail, a journey to visit the principal places where the masters of craft test one another. So the, the journey of uh, the struggle. The hero's journey. Yeah. Tom Cruise's character actually not knowing anything about cars. He wrote this, you know, didn't he? He was he was one of the writers? He did. Well, he wrote the story. The story. You got eight, the proto-enemy, the bad guy in the opening reels of the movie who provides the hero with an opponent to practice on. Now, at first, the Cruise character and the proto-enemy dislike each other, but eventually, through a baptism of fire, they learn to love one another. Now, that's Michael Rooker's character, uh, Rowdy Burns, which I was a big fan of that performance. I'm a big fan of Michael Rooker. Yeah, he's great, man. He Walking Dead, Guardians of the Galaxy, just yeah, one of my favorite character actors. Really good. For sure. Anyway. Michael Rooker, what's his uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? Um Yeah, I mean he's done tunnel uh, bunch of television. Yandu, he's got, yeah. He's got mad Yandu Udanda. Yeah, I mean, like I said, he's just been in so many different things. Um Mall rats. Yes, right. Yeah, <laughs> is it Mallrats? Yep. Tombstone, that. Cliffhanger, JFK. Yeah. Incredible character actor, and then you have the eventual enemy, a real bad guy who turns up the closing reels to provide the hero with his test of skill, his learning ability, his love, his craft, and his knowledge of the arena and the arcana. That's that's Carrie Elves. Is it is it El- Elves? I don't know or how elves. you pronounce his. I I don't know how you pronounce his name, but he's. He's great. Right. He's great in this role. Right. Roger Ebert breaking down the prototypical Tom Cruise movie, which they really didn't make much more of those because Roger Ebert killed it and dissected it and then put it up to a mirror in Hollywood's face and says, this is what you're doing. <laughs> right. Roger Ebert, had uh, he was such a respected film critic that he could pretty much dissect any film in any way he saw it and like just tell it for what it was, you know, he, but he right. at the same time could, uh, you know, write a review that was critical, but at the same time pointed out the really good things that the film did. And he won, like you said, awards for his writing his because he was so writer. vivid oh, with man. his synopsis of film. Is that a word? Synopsis? Synopsis? Synopsis. Synopsis? I don't know. Google. I have to look up that one up. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But you know what I'm saying. Re- Roger his Ebert, reviews. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's why, like, 
we want to make it a point to try and include Siskel and Ebert into each episode as much as we can to kind of give you a perspective of what two of the biggest film critics in the 90s had to say. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times and Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune could make or break a movie by their patented thumbs-up, thumbs-down rating. The entire film industry was at the mercy of two newspaper writers from Chicago who also had their own weekly syndicated TV show giving the thumbs-up or thumbs-down to new, new releases. Yeah, they had an awesome show, too, man. Like, that was Loved something it. that I, I looked forward to, just, like, seeing what Siskel and Ebert had to say about these films. Right, yeah. Now, our first film, Days of Thunder, is a romantic sports action drama released by Paramount Pictures, produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, who previously produced box office hits Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, and Top Gun. Uh, it was directed by Tony Scott, who directed Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. The film begins with Tim Daland, a wealthy car dealership and race team owner, played by Randy Quaid. He's on the farm of Harry Hodge, played by Robert Duvall. Tim is trying to convince Harry to get back to racing after a driver he was managing died at Daytona the previous year. Tim has a new driver by the name of Cole Trickle, played by Tom Cruise. Cole is a young race car driver who was very successful in the IndyCar circuit, but is looking to make a name for himself in NASCAR. A reluctant Harry agrees to see the new driver, and at the race car driver is Rowdy Burns, played by Michael Rooker. Now, this is a character that was uh, actually modeled after Dale Earnhardt. I don't know if you knew that. You know, it does give that uh, sense of the Intimidator. You know, I didn't really... Uh, know if that was the case, but you, you do get those vibes when you see the black suit and, you know, sort of the way he was an intimidator in this movie, you mm-hmm. know, to, to a degree. Right. Yeah. I think they didn't want to put a mustache on him. I think that would have been too obvious. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so they yeah, kind no, of totally. you know, made him look different, but the same kind of character as uh, Earnhardt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, Dave, before we even get into uh, like the rest of the film, like the opening credits, dude, because it does really give you that sense that you're on the racetrack when these cars are going around. This film really holds up to filmmaking today. Right. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that you feel like you're on the track because uh, Cole makes his first start in Phoenix, which was filmed at an actual NASCAR race the 1989 Auto Works 500 at the Phoenix International Raceway. How'd they do that? Here's how they did it. (laughs) (laughs) Movie magic. Two drivers fixed with cameras in them actually participated in the race. One of the drivers, Bobby Hamilton, was even in the lead for a few laps. No kidding. It was laps 50 and laps uh, 81 through 84. Now, they mostly dropped back and were the last two cars in the race, even getting lapped by Dale Earnhardt and Rusty Wallace, who probably wanted to like get in the shot, you know. Like, they lapped him, and he's racing. They kind of, like, as soon as they lapped him, they kind of slow down a little bit so they can, like, get as, see if they can get as much as they can in the movie. But, yeah, they, sure. their cars were in the movie. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so they were able to get unprecedented footage of a NASCAR race on the track. Yeah, the other driver, Greg Sachs' car, was equipped with two different cameras. So you got one inside the headlight and one inside the taillight. 
Yeah, dude. That's wild, right? It's because you feel like you're on the track. It's because it was actually shot on the track during a NASCAR race. They, they seriously look like shots that are, you know, you see in, in things nowadays with being able to do that with CGI, right? But, like, they were actually filming them with film cameras, too, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so it could only race 10 miles at a time. So the cameras could be switched out for two new cameras with a fresh load of film. That's awesome. They were able to get footage of this race during the pace laps from the view of the, you know, the back of the pace car. And one of the cars they used in the production of the movie was an uh, 86 El Camino, which they repurposed to film these shots. Oh, nice. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 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 You've got yeah. that flatbed to have all the camera equipment set up in there. That's perfect. Right, exactly. So you can, you know, do whatever and put kind of mounts, whatever kind of cameras back there. <laughs> Heck yeah, dude! I always love El Caminos, dude. That that makes it even right. that makes it even cooler. It's right. just, uh, yeah, they, awesome. they were able to repurpose it for the for the film. So, do you know what kind of car was used for Tom Cruise's portrayal of Cole Trickle, that famous mellow yellow car? What car was it actually? Oh, what car it was modeled after? Yeah, like it had a certain engine, and then I don't. Know, these different cause I don't. I'll give you a hint. Okay. I believe your sister had one of these cars. Oh, the Chevy Lumina? Chevy Lumina, yep. It was a Chevy Lumina was the actual car that it was, yeah. That makes sense. So our lead character has some trouble in his first few races, intimidated by Rowdy Burns. Cole then confesses to Harry that he doesn't know anything about cars. He just knows how to drive them. That's it. So Harry has his work cut out for him and trains him rigorously on how to finish and win a race. The rivalry between Cole and Rowdy gets more intense and even including a rental car race on the beach on their way to meet with the president of NASCAR, played by Fred Thompson. Obviously, Tom Cruise and Michael Rooker were, were not actually in the cars. I'm sorry. Spo- Spoilers, right? Spoiler yeah, people. No, no. They had stunt drivers. Sure. But they were actually driving on the beach. Yeah. Like, that was real. Yeah. No, I mean, like, all those yeah. stunts were pretty practical stunts that it seemed like they did in the movie. There was no CGI in these films. Right. Yeah. Practically not existent. You no, know, it's funny too, Dave, because, like, we skipped, like, the beginning of the film, right? Like, there's a lot of really classic lines in the beginning. And one of them, right. like, oh, did. Yeah, so, yeah. like, I wrote down some of them because there there's some really good ones. And we're like... Because Tyler was like, he's bumping me. He's bumping me. And then... Is it- yeah, Randy Quaid in the beginning. And he... Just the line because... Oh, where he's like, if you're if you're from Cali, you're not a Yankee. You're not anything. You know, like that's <laughs> it's just a t- total Randy Quaid line. He played this character to a T as well. It's just like, mm. you know, they just they have this this film does have that feel of like this was for you know a NASCAR fan, and even if you're not, you can get the sense that this is try to be as realistic as possible and right. not trying to sort of glamorize this for it. You know, like within the first minute, 30 seconds, you see a Confederate flag. Pretty apparent. This is a NASCAR film for NASCAR fans, you know. But uh, you could still, right. you know, appreciate the, uh, yeah. the, and especially with Robert Duvall, right? Like Robert Duvall, his, the, the Southern draw that he has makes it seem like, oh man, this guy, he was great. this I guy eats, Absolutely. breathes and sleeps this shit, right? Fantastic performance mm-hmm. by Robert Duvall. Yeah, I I love his performance. Yeah, big fan of his. But yeah, then, then no, this is the other part that made me chuckle. He goes, uh, who is this driver? And then right on cue, 
Tom Cruise comes around the corner on a motorcycle, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, dude, it's just, it's so classic. Uh, classic 80s trope, right? Where it's like, oh, they talk about a certain person, and boom, they show up. Most classic line of the movie is when he's in his first phrase, he's like, that guy's bumping me. He's like, nope, he didn't bump you. He rubbed you. <laughs> and rub it, son. It's racing. Rubbing is racing. So, yeah, go ahead, man, with this rivalry because it starts to get pretty intense. It would be intense until at the Firecracker 400 in Daytona where both drivers are seriously injured in a crash. Recovering in the hospital, Cole develops a romantic relationship with neurosurgeon Dr. Claire Lewicki, played by Nicole Kidman in her breakout role. Life would imitate art as Nicole and Tom Cruise began a romantic relationship that resulted in them getting married on Christmas Eve in 1990. Tom and Nicole would star in two other movies during their marriage before getting divorced in 2001. Now, Carlos, can you tell me the two other movies they were in together? Is that Far and Away and Is? the uh, Stanley Kubrick Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, there you go. Nice. And you got them in chronological order. Very yeah. nice. Yeah, no, uh, they, they did. They they have instant chemistry on, on screen, man. It's like they it was very apparent from early on. Yeah. But. So Cole was able to be cleared by the doctors, but Rowdy Burns began to show signs of brain damage and was unable to continue racing. It was during this time the relationship between Cole and Rowdy changed from a rivalry to a friendship. Rowdy is in need of keeping his sponsor, so he asks Cole to race his car. So the second bad guy comes into play when Tim Dillon gets a new racer in Russ Wheeler, a hotshot rookie played by Carrie Elves. Who... Now Harry does not approve of Dillon hiring Russ. Things get more intense when Russ blocks Cole's path during a pit stop. Yeah. So he's not able to wheel out. During the pit stop, and so Cole retaliates by crashing into Russ's car in uh, the victory lane, of course, which results in a huge fight between. Yeah, the and uh, and that's that part really made me laugh too, Dave, because it's like uh, the the part that uh, the announcer goes, uh, you know, there seems to be a little post race activity after Cole straight up like tries to t bone and kill this guy out of the the pit. You know what I mean? It's like, seems to be a little like yeah, a little post race activity. <laughs> Like, nothing major. He just tried to T-bone the dude into the wall, but no, no biggie. Uh, um, I should have... Oh, yeah, that, that part. Lost the opportunity to go JR with there. By God, he ripped him in half. That man is a family. <laughs> I mean, like, dude, that was a dick move that he did in the pit, right? And he knew what he was doing. Russ. Oh, was yeah. Like, but, yeah. But to tell you but, like that, it's but like, that was, oh, boy. Yeah. He, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, let's see. Out of bounds there. But, yeah, so then... Did they even get injured? Cole was okay after the, the previous injury. Now, yeah, Roddy Burns was unable to race because he had to go under for, undergo brain surgery, but is in need of keeping his sponsor, so he asked Cole to race his car at the Daytona 500. Now, Cole reluctantly agrees, and Harry is convinced to come back as crew chief. A few hours before the race, Harry discovers metal in the oil pan and has to get a new engine, but Tim Dillon gave him a new engine because he still believes in Cole's abilities. So even though he also owned Russ Wheeler's car, he decided to give them an engine. Yeah, you know, and that's that's a really cool scene between the two of those two guys because it's, you know, 
you know, obviously he's probably thought about, oh, he hates this guy's guts and he's going to let him drive his car. But actually, I wanted to go back to just a, a scene previous to that because I think that's when, like, Nicole Kidman has her, like, the monologue of, like, one of the monologues of the film where she just tells in the oh, parking yeah, lot, right? Yeah. She she gets out of the car. He's like, oh, it's like trying to tell her something. And he tells her nothing, right? And she's like, and then she just gives it to him, yeah, right? In the yeah. parking lot. Just absolutely steals the movie at an hour and 13 minutes in. It's a powerhouse of a monologue. And you can really just see these Nicole Kidman's acting prowess in that one scene. Yeah, because yeah, she goes at the end of it, she goes, she goes, God, I hate you for this, you son of a bitch. You make me sound like a doctor. And then walks off. Mic drop. You know? Like, yeah, such a, a good line. line. But yeah. And then, you know, then they have to, him and, and Cole have to have this sort of heart to heart. And, and Cruz is, has a very good way of acting with just his eyes. You know, right? Like, he doesn't say anything in his response. He shakes his head that he, he'll do it. And he, you know what I mean? And like, that's all you really need from him in that moment. But he, he plays it so well. You know, the mm-hmm. serious and, the seriousness of the scene. They both do. So, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. But, the, <laughs> but then, right, he uh, he leaves the hospital. All rowdy, I'll call him. Yeah, so he ends up racing, and then during the race, Cole's car is spun out by Russ and suffers a transmission malfunction. So he gets go back to the pit lane. Dave, I had a question, too, because for that Daytona race, did they... Like, before the race, they had, like, actual drivers at the time, like, do interviews... Right, and they talk about Cole, and like his yeah. mental oh, state yeah. or whatever, whether or not he can handle it, and uh, yeah. right. And you see Carrie Al, Al's uh, character, right, Russ Wheeler. He uh, he has a little right. something to say. He's like, yeah, we'll, we'll just be looking in my re- right. I'll just, you know, see him in my rear view. No, it's good. Yeah, I got all his camo cameos in. Do there. you know who those actors were? So I, the, the, the NASCAR, NASCAR drivers, drivers? Uh, I knew the Ellen Earnhardt. He's the only one I recognize by face, and then it, I looked it up. Uh, Rusty Wallace is the other one. Yeah, I knew there. I knew there was like there was like three or four of them. Oh, Richard Petty. That's the other name. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah. So Richard yeah, they Petty. got Richard Petty to do. Uh, yeah, of course that hat. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, okay. So with the help of the other team, the crew was able to push Cole's car back into the race. Now Cole catches up with Russ Wheeler, who's in the lead. Cole stays behind him to try a slingshot maneuver. So a tiny product placement on the smallest scale, the two sweet little mm-hmm. packets, where Tom Cruise is explaining uh, on Nicole Kidman's character's legs uh, how to do the slingshot maneuver. So he demonstrates uh, in the middle of this movie actually how to do it. So you stay behind the car. So he let's say the car's going like 150. You're right behind him. You don't have to go 150 to keep up with him because... He has the air resistance, and you don't. So there's more drag on his car. Now, when the time's right, you go around him, and you punch it up. This way, you shoot right past him, and that's how you win. Slingshot. Oh, yeah. I mean, Talladega Nights, man. That one taught us as well. (laughs) Yeah, Talladega Nights was definitely inspired uh, somewhat by this movie, just a little bit, in a few ways. I mean, the the obvious tie-in is John C. Riley, right? Like... A young John C. Riley in this film. John C. Riley being in this movie, yes. Oh, you know, yes, he does exactly. Talented Nights later. In his yeah. It's just full circle moment, man. Right. <laughs> right. He's he's a crew guy in Days of Thunder, but Great. yeah, in uh, Talladega Nights, he's an what was, what was his character's yeah, name? Bert. Bert Buckingstone or something? Buck Brotherton. John C. Riley, Buck Brotherton. Yeah, Buck Brotherton. Cole's car chief, yeah. 
Now, Russ thinks that Cole is trying to maneuver from the outside, but Cole actually tricks him by going inside, slingshotting past him to win the Daytona 500. And he sets him up, though. That's the thing. That's the part of the film that I was like, like, what is right. what is Cole trying to do here? Because the entire race, you know, Harry's trying to talk to him, and he won't even respond, right, until the moment where the crash happens and he's got to actually rely on Harry in order to get through it, right? And after that moment right. where he goes through the smoke and he trusts that Harry's going to keep him in, in a uh, straight line or a line that he can get through, you know, there's you see this change in his you know and that's all that he needed was just that spark of motivation to to trust in it and harry and like the one of the biggest races the super bowl of all races right and then he sets and he, then he, he's harry asks him he's like what are you doing he's like i'm setting him up and then he does it he tries tries on the outside a couple times and knowing that he's going to set him up for the third time to come on the inside yeah, and that's a classic yeah. finish right there Some good good racing yeah, yeah. The idea for this movie came from Tom Cruise himself. I don't know if you knew that. I He wrote the story, no? He did. So while he was filming The Color of Money with Paul Newman, Paul Newman took him racing. Oh, nice. So that's where he... Yeah, yeah we mentioned in our pilot episode that Paul Newman was a big racer because he was in the Super Bowl Twenty Four commercial, right? right? So... While they were filming, they had a, a day off or whatever, and Paul Newman said, hey, you want to go racing? You want to go race, car- race, sure. race cars? And Tom says, yeah, sure. And Tom, being the action junkie that he is, immediately fell in love with racing and the culture sure. of NASCAR. So he went to producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer and said, I want to make a NASCAR movie. Nice. Makes sense, dude. Like, you know, why not? Right. They had, there hadn't been one up until that point, right? So. Right. Who yeah. better than the, the guy that does all of his, like a lot of his own stunts? Right, yeah, for sure. Now, before production began, they got the approval of NASCAR, and they shadowed ESPN, specifically following around Dr. Jerry Punch, a former emergency medicine physician who became a pit reporter for ESPN in 1984 and made an appearance in the movie as himself. He's the guy with the glasses. Yeah. Yeah, that's Dr. Jerry Punch. Nice. Yeah, which is, I think, amazing that he was emergency physician and then he decided to go into this. Um, and for a little bit, he was still practicing medicine while he was still covering races and then, um, you know, became full-time. So that's a really good guy to have on the track if something, a horrible crash goes wrong. Yeah, no, certainly. See, So other cameos include Richard Petty, Rusty Wallace, Neil Bonnet, and Harry Gant. Producer Don Simpson appeared in the film... You know who he was? I, I don't know. You could guess? Uh, I mean, could be anybody, dude. I don't know. <laughs> it's true, because, yeah, no one, most people don't know a dance a producer. Of, uh, like, right? Yeah, I mean, right? So he played a character named Aldo Benedetti, modeled after Mario Andretti. So he played a fictional race car driver oh, that was modeled after Mario Andretti. The guy that kind of resembled Mario Andretti? That's like the guy that... They, that right. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I thought that was Mario Andretti. Right. Yeah. I was like, hey. You're like, wait a minute. No, it's Aldo Benedetti. <laughs> Aldo is Mario Andretti's twin brother. We did an episode last time about a twin brother. I had to mention that Mario Andretti has a twin brother named Aldo. Oh, wow. Quick story, yeah. Aldo actually raced for a little bit, got a few car accidents, so Mario said, 
can you please resign from racing? Uh, and he it went into the racing business and did well for himself. So. Ah, I didn't know he was twin, though. Yeah, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, huh, interesting. Nice. Shooting the movie began in early 1990 for a June 6th release, but production had several delays due to arguments on set between Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, Tony Scott, and sometimes screenwriter Robert Town. Production was so behind that when editor Chris Lebenzon arrived on January 2nd, he had to work every day and into the night to make the June 6th release date. The scenes were often rewritten overnight just to keep up with production. And when Hans Zimmer was hired, he was in for quite a surprise. Now, we mentioned Hans Zimmer winning an Oscar for this movie, right? We mentioned Hans Zimmer. Now, he got the call to come into Daytona to meet with Simpson and Bruckheimer and Scott, thinking that he was just going for a meeting. Little did he know that they needed him to stay in Daytona and stay in Daytona with just what he had on him. And he was told that if he were to leave at all, the movie wouldn't come out on time. Jeez. I mean, no pressure, right? No pressure at all. But, yeah. So the production crew planned on being in Daytona for three weeks. They ended up being there for three months. That's a long time, dude. Post-production was supposed to be five months. They only had five weeks. Yikes! They made it. Uh, they made a hell of a film out of out of it, and you know what I mean. Right. I'm sure they had a shit ton of material to go through. You know, right. Like the editing process exactly. is a very complicated mm-hmm. thing, and like you know, I'm sure they. We had this type of footage. Yeah, there's probably a ton of footage to go through, and you know, you have to remember they're shooting on film, so you know, time is money. Right. Yeah, you're going over. So originally, yeah, the, shoot the budget That's was around not great. Oh, so what was the original budget, Dave? About thirty million. And what they spent? Fifty? Sixty? <laughs> they doubled it. Yeah, they about doubled their budget. Yeah, well, that's how over. <laughs> you gotta spend money to make money, Dave. So they pushed it back to June twenty seventh. Yeah. To give them some more time, so they didn't make the June sixth release. And when production wrapped and they were editing the final scene, they had one big problem. They forgot to get a shot of Cole crossing the finish line. You know, like at the end, the big finale part. Yeah, they neglected to get that specific shot. And it's like, that's everything. (laughs) So they had to reshoot that scene a week before the movie came out. So they were able to finish shooting the scene and piece the final cut together just days before the June 27th release date. Now, yes, the first uh, uh, the first weekend at the box office was a success, with the film grossing fifteen point four million in its opening weekend. So, for that time, fifteen was a solid weekend in nineteen ninety. Oh yeah. Now, can you guess what movie was number two? Uh, summer blockbuster. See, so June twenty seventh, all star cast playing all sorts of different sorts of characters. Uh, based on an old comic book. Little Rascals? No. <laughs> that was based on an old TV show. I don't know. What was number two? Dick Tracy. Oh, Dick yeah. Tracy, Tracy the movie. Yeah, the Dick yeah. Tracy movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. That was number two at 10.1 million. Now, Carlos, four sequels were in the top 10 at the box office that week. Can you name them? Four sequels? Uh, four sequels. Right. Top 10 at the box office that week. So one, yeah. So we get... Go, is Ghostbusters 2 one of them? 
No. What type of... It was yeah. like two years before. Okay. Um, shoot. Okay, Back to the Future 2. No? The, see, the, two. the third one? The third one, Back, the back three, to the Future right. 3. Yeah, that was Back to the Future Part 3. That is correct. One of the, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? No? No, the, that was the year before, I believe. Oh, man. I think. Let's see here. Sequel. Alien 2? Is that 1990? I don't know. No, we got science fiction, dystopian, crime. I have no idea, dude. Oh. We got RoboCop 2. RoboCop 2. <laughs> okay. A buddy cop comedy, Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy. Oh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Kind of no, no, no. 48 hours. 48 hours 2. Right. So another 48 hours, yeah. And uh, one of my favorite sequels of all time. Oh, um, blank, The New Batch. Gremlins. The New Batch is the subtitle. Gremlins 2. Gremlins yes. 2, oh, The New Batch. Um, yeah, Gremlins 2 is great. Yeah, I named my, uh, one of my first cats Gizmo. We, we had a, a cat at home named Gizmo. Yeah, the film received mixed reviews yeah. from critics, but somewhat positive reviews from Siskel and Ebert. Both gave a thumbs up. So it got two thumbs up, but wasn't Siskel pretty uh, critical of the ending? And what this film also does well, I think, is give us a sense of the crazy leap of faith these drivers make, whether it's passing on the outside or driving through a smoke-filled track when there's been a crash in front of them. At some point, you just have to go straight ahead. Days of Thunder has a flat ending. It has actually a terrible ending in its last frame. It's a still frame ending with two yeah, people yeah. frozen in images. What a out of, cliche. I, I, I just resented that. Yeah. However, the film works in bits and pieces more than an entire picture. Even with those reservations, however, I still recommend it. I recommend it too. So, I mean, personally, I enjoyed this movie. I, I, I did. I like, still I liked it. I think it help, help holds up to uh, filmmaking standards. I think, you know, for the time that it was made, it was doing things filmmaking-wise that weren't being done before. Uh, like you mentioned with the cameras on the cars and things like that. Like some of those track shots when they're coming around the corner and you can see like just, you know, this awesome sunset. Like that's a that's like a total Tony Scott thing. Like, you know, you see that like it has a lot in his right. films. Yeah, like for a, sure. It's a very yeah, action-oriented like shot. Even, you know, you mentioned Top Gun, even at the end of the race there, right, where you see him take off the mask and it's just like, the sunlight's in his face, and it almost has that, you can see the microphone thing around, and it almost has that Top Gun feel to it, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. Some great really shots, great yeah. shots in this film. You know, you have that storyline with Dr. Claire Lewicki, and Dr. Claire Lewicki and Lewicki. Cole, and, yes. and that, that really yeah. works. That chemistry on, on, on screen is undeniable. So, yeah, this 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 movie works in a lot of ways. It really does. Like I, I was saying before, like Michael Rooker's performance is what stood out for me. I was I've always been a big fan, but I just all the levels and the characters kind of have like two or three different arcs throughout the course of the movie, and he, he just plays them. Yeah, no, you definitely great. see a development in his character throughout the film. As uh, yeah, and as both, you know, because there are times where you're even you're even rooting for him. You know, did yeah. uh, did they end up making a sequel to this film, Dave? No, but I mean, with Top Gun. Coming out now, I wouldn't be surprised if Tom Cruise entertained the thought of doing. I mean, days I, of what are we even sequel. talking about? You know what I'm saying? Exactly, dude. Like, yeah. So Robert Duvall is doing okay. Yeah, he's he's uh. So Cruise is in the bring them all back. He still dude. looks like he's bring back Rucker. They were forty. Um, John That's C. What I'm Riley. saying. Bring back John C. Riley. They need to make yeah, the sequel. All, all those guys. We're, uh, we're throwing that on the universe. So 
Uh, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if, like, three years from now, we're talking about... It'd be great, dude. I think they should. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, all the elements exactly. there. I mean, they did it with Creed, right? So... Yeah, right. Simpson, Don Simpson passed in 96, right around the time when The Rock was oh, released. Okay. Uh, but Bruckheimer... He still I has that production. Still... The same production company, right? Yeah, I believe he still has his... Tony Scott passed away in August of 2012. I mean, you could have Ridley Scott do it, dude. That right? would be cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there would be any number of directors who would want to do that film, but if you could keep it within Absolutely. the family, that would be awesome. Not, I mean, seriously, Michael Bay, J.J. Abrams, you could name like a list of action directors that, that would do this film justice. Right. A year after the film's release... The fictional Mellow Yellow sponsorship turned into a real-life sponsorship for Kyle Petty, carrying the paint scheme on the number 42 car from 1991 to 1994. So Mellow Yellow really put themselves out there and maybe took a gamble on product placement for this Yeah, I mean, I wonder what the sales for Mellow Yellow were after this film. I guarantee you that, you know, they they, they did pretty well for themselves. I didn't drink it. Much growing up, but did you? I've tried it. Uh, in the Mellow Yellow? Surge. I think Surge is better. <laughs> the soundtrack had a wide variety of popular artists at the time. I, I know, yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't listen to the entire thing. But, you know, I was skimming through those tracks. Classics there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're on the motorcycle? At the time. Okay, so that's the way yeah. you, you said you're going to do that. I was like, yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> You feel the need for speed. Yeah. No, it's got some classic tunes on there, man. Yeah, so we got Cher, Tina Turner, Elton John, Guns N' Roses. Did you hear the different version of Knockin' on Heaven's Door? Yeah, I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard that before either. I was like, oh, they did alternate. So they did an alternate version. This was before they released Use Your Illusion 2. So before they released the studio album, which was on, which has went like multi-platinum everyone knows that song yeah yeah whenever when i whenever when i do my best axel rose impression i just just sing that one <laughs> yeah it's just it's got all of it all the different axel roses isms or his idiosyncrasies or whatever vocally wise is in that song yeah, it's a great one <laughs> So it's, yeah, call, like, it's like a call response in the second verse. Yeah, so they, yeah, they have a different version of the Days of Thunder soundtrack than the one that was released on that Use Your Illusion soundtrack uh, album. Yeah, well, who else? Yeah, yeah, you mentioned Elton John. Uh, so, did the, uh, so among, the, so yeah, Hans Zimmer. So yeah, the score was composed by Hans Zimmer, as we mentioned, with Jeff Beck on the guitar parts. Now, among the musicians, there is one very notable name. This guy played bass guitar in addition to John Van Tongeren. This additional bassist would go on to become a producer for Richard Marks and Mariah Carey. You know who I'm talking about? It's a guy who you auditioned front of. Randy Jackson? Yes. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, Randy Jackson, dude. The guy's a hell of a studio musician. He- was he's a lot credits so yeah, I was looking at him and I was like oh my god yeah, yeah he's worked with everyone like like in Springsteen and yeah. Journey <laughs> uh, there's so many different names in the business Boys to Men yeah, um, I mean like I said yeah he did a lot of Mariah's albums after that so Richard Marks and Mariah Carey are like the two biggest names in the 90s 
that he went on to produce, obviously. But yeah, there's so many different people that he's either played on or produced. It's yeah. Dave, what did he say to me when I auditioned? Yeah, what did he? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> when I uh, finished auditioning for American Idol, I you know I auditioned, got a chance to audition for the judges, and I got to um, after about three rounds of auditioning. After I'm done doing my audition, so your stick is yeah. No, uh, you know, I finished auditioning, singing Tom Jones. It's not unusual, looking like a Mexican Carlton Banks. And after I audition, Randy Jackson goes, "Nah, dog, not a chance." <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's actually not a chance. No, no, no not a chance. And then uh, Cara Diagardi, she was one of the other judges. This was after Paula Abdul had left. She tried to throw me off during my audition and was like hand on her cheek, just looking like she was bored as hell. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to audition for you if you don't respect my time. I'm just going to stare at Shania Twain instead because she seemed really lovely and she was. And, you know, she was sitting next to Simon. So it was like, and I didn't want to stare at Simon. That's for damn sure because, dude, that guy was really oh, intimidating yeah. in real life. <laughs> right. But uh I got through my audition just fine, <laughs> hit all the notes, danced the Carlton. I thought it was hilarious, but they didn't seem that amused by it. Got through my audition, and Simon goes, that wasn't serious, was it? And I and I said, well, what do you mean? I, of course I was serious. He's like, I took the singing serious. And he goes, and, and the dancing? And I said, guys, seriously? Like, where's your sense of humor? Like, have you never seen The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? And... They gave me silence, and I was like, oh, okay, I see how this is. All right, great. I did what I needed to do on your show for your ratings, and that's that, right? And, and then that's... Yeah, I got you on national television. But that was the thing. It's like 12, 13 million people saw me do the Carlton and look, you know, in this burgundy blazer with a bow tie and khaki pants. I had no qualms doing it. They knew it. I knew it. It was just like, this is what I'm doing for the audition, and it's, it was an incredibly long audition process. You do, like... And you go to the right. Oh yeah. And but I'm like the. I wasn't there for the first day. I yeah. I had no interest in auditioning. I you were there for when there was like ten thousand people. I was lucky to be there when you auditioned for the judges when there was like twenty. I mean, it was like thirty contestants. It was like that probably was closer crazy. to like fifty. I think like because they had two days of 50, two days right? of auditions, and it was like yeah. Right. But right. I was literally the second person to audition. Like they had this curly-haired blonde girl that went right before me who was an amazing singer who deserved to get to Hollywood. And I was, and then I was the second yeah. person that, that went up. And they were like, oh, you look like you're a barbershop quartet. Are you going to sing us in barbershop or something? You know, like something real corny. Like, there's only one of me. How can I sing barbershop quartet? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, needless to say, I, you know, they, 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 wrapped up the audition pretty quickly. And I was like, all right, well, thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. And I walked out there with my head held high because I knew that you and my family and, you know, all my best friends were there supporting me outside. And, you know, I remember looking, Ryan Seacrest, uh, you know, he, he like, you know, interviews people afterwards and he was like, uh, how do you feel? And I was like, I feel great. Like, I feel fine. Like, or what did I say, Dave? It was just like, I basically said that, like, I have all the love and support I need right here. And, you know, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. Like, I had a lot of fun. So, I'll see you again on another red carpet. Yeah, something like, or something yeah, like that. I was just like, I'll see you someday. I'll see you again like someday, dude. They wanted specific people on the show, yeah. and you fit a profile of okay, let's put this guy in the montage of the weirdos or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was funny. It's on the deep recesses, recesses of YouTube. It, you can find it somewhere. So, is, is 
you can find that on YouTube, probably that whatever that episode is, but you don't have a clip of yourself doing <laughs> that on YouTube? I mean, I don't know. It's somewhere, somewhere around there. Right. It's not like something I wanted to put on my real date. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I actually, I wanted to, to make this note. At the end of the movie, when Cole gets out of his car, right, and he's got all that, why does he have, like, half blackface? Like, why was there so much soot in the car? Is it be- is because half his face is facing the driver's side? No. I, when he took his helmet off? Yeah, he off? takes off his whole mask, his, his whole helmet, and, like, you know, his goggles are off. But, like, the entire bottom half of his face is covered in dirt. And it looks like it's just kind of, like, smeared on, like, very perfectly underneath. His, it's not, like, you know, patchy in some spots. I'm, like, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what were they thinking when they... When they were doing that makeup, that like... Like, oh, he's in the middle of a race. We want to make it look like he's been through stuff or something. I suppose, but then he kisses. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but I... No, you're right. Yeah. Then he gives her a big kiss. His face would be dirty if he was wearing a helmet. (laughs) Yeah, he's wearing a a helmet and goggles and then all... Underneath the helmet, you're wearing uh, a Nomex suit or a a burn-proof suit that's like... A hoodie underneath that helmet, so you're not getting dirty. Yeah, there's just excessive amount of dirt on his face, and I was like, okay, that's a little over the top. And then he Unless makes out. You're with, actually yeah. on fire, and you're putting yourself out. Then you might have those black marks, but yeah, I thought that was. Uh... Yeah, that's, that's a little detail I didn't notice. You're, yeah, so you're more of a visual guy than I am, and it's yeah, it's keen eye. That that's definitely like a little. There was weird. another thing that I noticed. So yeah, it's like there's the the bluesy guitar scene with uh, Cole just looking out under the track while he's seemingly doing laundry and contemplating his actions of that argument that, you know, after uh, the doctor just gives him the biz, right. which is a classic 80s trope, right? You just gotta, you gotta have that oh, for synth sure. music with, but yeah. they, they brought it back. They brought Thinking it into in, 1990. Thinking internally? Yeah, where you gotta play up like a little bluesy guitar and then like some synth chords out there to make him seem like he's thinking about uh, shit. While he's doing his laundry and looking at the, right. the cars on the track, because yeah, they have a nice little tide plug like thing in the. In and the, then the cars are in the background. Yeah. That's, so, yeah. that's like, why is there laundry? Is there laundry man? Is it next to track? Right, that's what I was trying to figure uh, out. I'm like, okay, well, you got some time to to, to think while you're doing laundry. So let's just put a tide, you know, thing in the corner there, and we'll give them a plug. Just some more product. Some more product. No big deal. Product place. Throw it on. What else did I notice that I was a little critical of? Oh, when uh, Cole has the audacity to go up to Harry at the end of the film, and he goes, Harry, say something. It's like, God damn it, Cole. He's been trying to get you to say something the entire race, and now you're the one that's coming asking him to say something? It's like, jeez, this kid. Man, this kid just doesn't listen, does he? Even when in victory. And then they have that real sweet moment. But then it's just ruined with... The freeze frame at the end, man. I'm like, ah, man. Right. Why? Yeah. Why? Is there, you know. Oh, I know why. Because they forgot to film like the classic thing at the end. They they didn't write an ending that was sufficient enough. They're like, all right. After all the rewrites, they're like, well, how do we end this thing? <sighs> freeze frame it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it'll it'll work, but 
by the time the movie's over, people are already invested in the movie. It's not like they can turn it off. Yeah. So if you screw up the ending, now the movie's over. Either way. That's fair enough. Fair point. That was kind of a common thing back then. Right? That was like a yeah. very <laughs> common thing that films did, where they just ended on a freeze frame. Uh, thankfully, they do. Yeah. You know, we've got better better ways of ending my films like that. Still, I mentioned the Mary Tyler Moore at the end of her show. Yeah. She, she throws up her cap. That's just the, that's the classic line. I, I Yeah. <laughs> you're like well that works let's do let's try yeah. that and then yeah movies did that I'm sure yeah obviously that frame existed the freeze frame at the end existed before then but that, that's the one my, my whole thing is like why did why were they racing like why what was he just even keep yeah I mean they were just I think they were just kind of ribbing each other it was more of a kind of a joke because Harry's old right and Cole's young so I mean realistically you know He's not going to beat Cole in a real football. Yeah, that's. I actually wanted to see him race all the way to the victory lane. I honestly wanted to see that. I'm really disappointed that they didn't continue. They didn't continue that. Honestly, I wish they would have. Right, right, right. And then, I mean, I just, I genuinely wanted to see like some victory lane shit of them celebrating, you know, a little more with the team and some champagne bottles or with the milk, you know. Like, none of that. Yeah. Lame. None of it. That... You got everybody there. Why not shoot a celebratory scene? That's pretty, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, behind they shoot behind production. They just had to wing yeah. it. That's my theory. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a decent theory, Dave. Uh, yeah, no, but I mean, overall, I think we both get this movie a two thumbs up. Yeah, Eber like gave that. it three stars. I truly believe it's a three-star movie. It feels like it. Yeah. It's three stars. Yeah. yeah. That's a fair assessment, no, I, I think. think so. That was a, that's a fun one, man. I'm glad I, I kind of ate all my popcorn before this episode started. Like it happens. Normally, just people like do movie, during the previews like, where you're just like, yeah, man. You get this thing of popcorn. Away. It's halfway over by the time the movie starts. But yeah, man, I, uh, I really enjoyed this first first half of the feature. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you guys on the next one. I'm punching away here, but <laughs> we're going to take a little intermission. And uh, on the next half of this double feature, we'll be talking about the one and only Rocky Five. and it's a sometimes pleasing finale for the series. Pleasing when it gives us back the original Rocky of the streets that captivated us in the first movie. This final chapter opens with Rocky punch drunk from the fight in Rocky IV. That was Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune introducing Rocky V as to what he thought was going to be the last Rocky movie. Rocky V is the fifth installment of the story of the fictional boxer Rocky Balboa played by Sylvester Stallone. The first film has Rocky, an unknown fighter, take on heavyweight champ Apollo Creed. Rocky didn't win, but went the distance with Apollo. The first film was a financial and critical success, winning Best Picture in 1976. Rocky II was a rematch of Rocky and Apollo, only this time Rocky won and became heavyweight champion of the world. Rocky III saw a new villain, Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T., Rocky lost the first match to Clubber, then won back his title at the end of the movie. Rocky IV shocked audiences in the beginning when Russian 
Ivan Drago beat Apollo Creed so bad he died in the ring. Rocky out for revenge beat Drago in the Soviet Union on Christmas Day. Rocky V picks up where Rocky IV left off. Rocky, visibly shaken from the fight, goes back to the States and at the press conference is called out by George Washington Duke, a boxing promoter modeled after Don King. Rocky Balboa, the funniest champion ever. America's own Rocky Balboa. How are you? How are you? George Washington Duke here, promoter extraordinaire, welcoming back Rocky Balboa, champion of all the Americas and all the Russians. Now, I would, um, I'd like to digress from the questions a bit and uh, pose an interesting proposition to the media. Everyone in this city, certainly in the world of sports, knows my reputation for promoting some of the finest extravaganzas in this country. Yeah. It jumps right into it, right after part four ends. It gives you a little bit of a brief recap, and then it, it gets right into it. Right, picks up right where left off. Now, Duke attempts to pressure Rocky into fighting his boxer, Union Kane. When Rocky and Adrian return home, they learn that Pauly, Rocky's brother-in-law, played by Burt Young, gave power of attorney to Rocky's accountant, who spent all of Rocky's money on bad real estate deals and unpaid taxes. Rocky is broke, but it is fixable with a few fights. Rocky initially accepts the fight with Kane, but when Rocky is diagnosed with brain damage, he retires from boxing. After his belongings and home are sold off to pay debts, Rocky and family move back to the old working-class neighborhood in Philadelphia, where it all began. Now, when Rocky enters Muddy Mick's gym, he sees a vision of himself from years past. I thought that was a really cool scene. Yeah, and, you know, for this uh, particular, in, well, when we first see Rocky go into that gym, it's very reminiscent of that first Rocky, right? John G. Elvidson, he decided to shoot that scene in sort of the same way as that first one. So it's, there's a lot of shots that are sort of homages to that first film since he came back for this one. Yeah, and uh, Burgess Meredith reprises his role of Mickey for this flashback scene. Mickey had died in Rocky III, but Burgess Meredith was still alive at this point. Now, the words of inspiration that Mikey gives Rocky comes straight from Customato talking about Mike Tyson. I did read that, yeah. That's uh, it's pretty awesome, actually. But, uh, because, I mean, you know, this film kind of takes a lot of uh, similarities to real life, right? The Don King, Customato, and, and Mickey and their relationship. So, yeah, it was, uh, I guess, after... Mike Tyson had won his first fight. He gave this inspirational speech to Mike, and that's that's what that monologue was modeled after. Yeah, it's a, it's an interview. If he weren't here, I probably wouldn't be alive today. The fact that he is here and doing what he's doing and doing as well as, in, as he's doing and improving as he has gives me the motivation and interest to stay alive because I believe that a person dies when they no longer wants to live. Nature is a lot brighter than people think. Little by little, we lose our friends that we care about, and little by little, we lose our interest, until finally we say, well, what the devil am I doing around here for? We have no reason to go on. But I have a reason with, with Mike here, and he gives me the motivation. I will stay alive, and I will watch him become a success. Soon after Rocky sets up shop at Mickey's old gym, he is approached by a young fighter by the name of Tommy Gunn, played by real-life boxer Tommy Morrison. Rocky agrees to become his manager. Training Tommy gives Rocky a sense of purpose as Tommy quickly works his way up to becoming a top contender. Meanwhile, Rocky is ignoring his 
son, Rocky Jr., played by Sage Stallone, Sylvester Stallone's son in real life. Now, Rocky Jr. is having trouble with a bully at his new school. Now, Carlos, did you happen to notice who was playing that bully? Yeah, you know, at first I was like, who is that kid? I recognize him. And then, you know, you do the whole, uh, you know, the Leo me pointing at the screen and you're like, oh, that's Kevin Connolly. That's a young Kevin Connolly. Little E over there. Right. Most famous for playing Eric Murphy or E on the HBO series Entourage. As Tommy Gunn works his way up, he is anxious for a title shot, but Rocky thinks he's not ready. George Washington Duke takes advantage of this situation by showering Tommy with luxuries and makes himself Tommy's manager. Tommy Gunn defeated Union Kane for the title, but after the fight, Tommy credits his success to Duke and not Rocky. Now, in the press conference after the fight, the press hounded Tommy, insisting that Kane was a paper champion because he didn't win the title from Rocky. Yeah, man, those reporters were ruthless, dude. Right? They were yeah. un, unrelenting, man. They were really, and apparently they were real boxing writers and reporters. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it makes it even all the more realistic because, you know, Tommy Morrison was a real boxer as well. So he, there wasn't, I'm sure, a whole lot of acting going on in that scene. He was probably right. taking that yeah. shit really personally. Right. And he was telling, he's getting like really defensive about it. It's like, I'm a champ. What are you, yeah. What are you guys talking about? Yeah, I'm a champ now. Well, well, you know. Yeah, but yeah, so, man, those those guys tore into him, and that's like, and then I read that oh, those guys were were real reporters for the most part. Yeah, George Washington Duke convinces Tommy that he needs to secure a fight with Rocky to prove he's the real champ. Now Duke and Tommy show up to the local bar Rocky is at, challenging him to a fight. I ain't do talking with you yet. Hey, look, Tommy, I ain't got no more to say to you, okay? Look, I just want good things for you. Oh, yeah, you did. And you're only in this for the money. Money? Yeah, I'm tired of walking around in your shadow, man. People call me your robot. You thought I was in this for the money, Tommy? You know, we were, we were supposed to be like brothers. You know, you don't remember that? You don't know this, man. You got a deception going here. This guy here, he was using you for the bait. He wants to get you and me in the ring. That's what he wants us to fight each other, you know, to make the money, right? He don't care about you, Tommy. don't care about me neither. Come on, come on. Enough of the fantasy. Let's talk reality. Rocky declines and tries to reason with Tommy, but Polly steps in and gets punched by Tommy. Now, this is when Rocky decides to challenge Tommy to a street fight, despite Duke's objections. So what do they do? They take it outside. Yeah, I mean, he he took it. It was personal at that point, man. Put hands on Polly. Like any uh, good bar bar fight, you know, you take take it outside. Right, but the only difference between this fight was the neighborhood was watching and there was also a tv news crew capturing that fight on live television yeah and that's the other part too that i was like this part okay this doesn't make a whole lot of sense here this ending so did, didn't duke didn't his, he bring the camera crew with he brought them as part of the, his entourage right the right. camera crew didn't just show up right he brought the camera crew there to challenge rocky to a fight but rocky's like hey, this is and Tommy's like, let's just do this right now. And then Rocky's like, oh, no, no. no but, and then he punches Polly, and then it's on. But, well, that's, so, that's a really so good line, too, Dave. Because that's a good line right before they go outside. He goes, like, what does it say? He goes, uh, my ring's outside. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 
my ring's outside. And then, yeah, yeah that was the thing. They were videotaping it. And then uh, the part two, it's like during that fight, the brawl, it looks like something out of a WWE wrestling. And it's funny because when you see the credits, you end up noticing a name. And if you're a, fa- a fan of wrestling, you're familiar with this name. And the guy that did the stunt choreography for those fight scenes in the at the end was Terry, not other than Terry Funk. Right, so, Terry Funk, yeah, so yeah. it totally makes sense. Like I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, I can see that. One of the greatest hardcore wrestlers ever, ever, legend in the business. Yeah, so that was cool because I didn't realize that at the time when I first, you know, years ago watching that. That that was an awesome, and then uh, and then also in the fights scene, dude, you see a little flashback of Mickey, and you know, you see various flashbacks of uh, mm-hmm. throughout, you know, Rocky getting right. pummeled in this fight. And then, uh, you know, right before he's, he's about to get popped, he goes, get up, you son of a bitch, because Mickey loves you. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's classic. Right, yeah, he, just, yeah, he sees, like, nightmare flashbacks of Drago, and then, yeah, Mickey's telling him, yeah, get up and fight. Yeah, screaming, oh, Adrian so screaming. Makes... He sees uh, Apollo Creed during that montage. Yeah. He sees all these different flashbacks of getting in these battles. Right. Rocky makes use of his street fighting skills and defeats Tommy. Tommy gets carried out by the cops, and George Washington is standing there saying, if you touch me, I'll sue you. But Rocky hits him anyway, and he goes flying on the hood of his limo. Yeah, he threatened him twice during that fight. Like, don't touch me. So I'll yeah. suit. And then uh, Rocky does it with, you know, by, with about 40 or 50 spectators, a busload of people, right. uh, you know, cops in, in the background. Yeah, there was, they, they were all on Rocky's side at that point. The end shows Rocky and Rocky Jr. climbing the steps leading up to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. At the top of the steps is the statue of Rocky. Things come full circle for Rocky and his son when he gives them a necklace containing a cufflink belonging to Rocky Marciano. The Rocky Marciano had given the cuff link to Mickey, who had given it to Rocky, who now Rocky has given it to his son. Freeze frame, the end. Yeah, <laughs> and that uh, cuff link thing, the, the Golden Gloves, did you, uh, did you read this, Dave? That they, so they, they first showed it in the third one, right? Uh, that story uh, right. That, that Mickey tells. And then you see it throughout the fourth one. And then in this one, it makes a reappearance when he, you know, tells uh, Tommy about the the story or whatever. And then he says, well, who'd he give the other cufflinks right. to? He said, and Mickey goes, oh, probably some other bum. Well, that was to infer that the other bum he gave those cufflinks to was to Apollo Creed. So the two pairs that Rocky gave were to Rocky and, and Apollo. But the other cool thing was as a promotion for this movie, they uh, decided to give away like souvenir golden clubs if you will at the uh premiere uh grauman's chinese theater for the hollywood premiere that'd be cool so yeah that would have been a cool little souvenir to get (laughs) i noticed this other thing too at the end of the movie so richard gant's character the uh don king type george washington duke he yells at rocky he's like ah i'm gonna sue you and you can see there's an extra standing just to the right of rock and he like looks at him and you can see him mouth the words f him (laughs) <laughs> it's like you know doing a lot of background work over the years i tend to notice those background actors a lot you know things that they do during the scene and that one was just so obvious that he was mouthing what he mouthed it was just hilarious right. and they, they left it in the film well i noticed i don't know if it was in two or three they were walking in the park and literally there was extras walking behind them and the extras were walking behind them literally 
looking into the camera as they were walking. Oh, we, it was hilarious. Right? No, we called those background actors, Dan. Hilarious. Yeah. So both movies we talked about ended in a freeze frame, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what else these two movies have in common besides both being released in 1990? So there. What do these two movies have in common? Or should I say, who? who do these two movies have in common? Now, no actors. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, the fact that. It's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. They. I think soundtrack. Soundtrack. Elton John. Does the ah, theme? Boom, yeah, there it boom. is. So Elton John does the what song on on both the albums, right? The Rocky Five finishes with the, the theme song yeah. by Elton John. So yeah, nice, good catch. Yeah. Nice, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, the song "You Gotta Love Someone" was in Days of Thunder, and the song "The Measure of a Man" played during the credits of Rocky Five. Now the soundtrack to the album is not the original motion picture score, but rather has music. From and inspired by the film. There was a lot of hip-hop in Rocky V. It was yeah. a very hip-hop-influenced uh, montage sequences right. that uh, you didn't see in the other ones. Right. What's, uh, yeah, so yeah, most of the soundtrack contains hip-hop and also what's described as New Jack Swing. Are you familiar with this term? New Jack Swing? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've never heard it like that before, but... <sighs> It's kind of that style in the early 90s where it would have hip-hop beats with, like, jazz and R&B where they would kind of sample, like, old kind of jazz songs and put them into hip-hop. Yeah. Probably the best way I can describe it. Yeah. I mean, those were the early days of hip-hop. So they were trying right. different sounds. And in, in the early 90s, a lot of that was a very rhythmic, I guess that's the best way to describe it. But, yeah, MC Hammer had a track on, on the soundtrack. Snap mm-hmm. was on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The classic Bill Conti songs, Conquest, Mickey, and Gonna Fly Now are used in the film, but are not on the soundtrack. Rocky V was released on November 16th, 1990, and came in at number two at the box office its opening weekend, taking in $14 million. You want to take a guess at what movie was number one that weekend? I'll give you a couple hints. Okay. Well, let's see. I believe it was the biggest selling movie of 1990. Huh. Uh, yeah, and, or at least during the holiday season. Hint, hint. Home Alone. Home Alone. Home Alone. Number one at that point? And it's opening weekend yeah. also. And it made $17 million. Now, Rocky Five only made $40 million in the U.S. and Canada, but did almost double that internationally for a total of $120 million. So what did the critics have to say about Rocky Five? Well, as far as for Siskel and Ebert, here they are giving their final decision. And I also would have loved to have seen the more daring ending that was originally planned in the film. It's received a lot of publicity in which Rocky dies in Adrian's arms. Still, I like this guy with his dumb hat, and I vote thumbs up on the movie. I vote a thumbs down, Gene. I thought that the structure of the film was completely predictable from the other films. And although I like the fact that he's got his hat on again and he's back on the streets of Philadelphia, that was only a reminder to me of the richness and the texture and the humor and the humanity of the dialogue and the characters in the first movie, Rocky, which, remember, won the Academy Award for Best Picture of the Year, and now it's just a series. You have to find a new villain every time. You have to end with a big fight. Uh, The pieces are all just plugged in. There's no real juice in this movie. It was a split decision by Siskel and Ebert. Now, the film was nominated for seven Golden Raspberry Awards, honoring the worst of cinematic 
underachievements. Yeah, that's a lot of Razzies. <laughs> really? That is. was a lot. And you know what's funny? They didn't win any of them. No. So I don't know what's worse, being nominated for all those Razzies and being nominated for all those Razzies and not winning them. I mean, if you if you are, I mean, you, you do want to win that, no? No, you don't. <laughs> but uh, I actually read that, like, Time, in 1999, Time Magazine rated this one of the 100 oh, worst ideas what, what of the all. worst ideas of the 20th century? Of the 20th century. Oh, century. I'm glad, glad you brought that up because some other notable worst ideas from the 90s include Barney. You know, the purple dinosaur. What? Yeah. But Barney educated kids, man. Come on. You can't. That's not a terrible idea. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. That was kind of past our time. We're, 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 we were Sesame Street kids. So yeah. we were biased. I'm a biased towards Sesame Street. But okay. that's like that's our generation. We're that's a little past our time. But still, man, you can't say that you don't know those Barney songs because everybody. I mean, they don't. were. Right. It's like. Uh, Drilled into your head. How could you not? Yeah. Barney was, was better than advertised, man. That was, he was probably more annoying than anything else. He was cer- certainly annoying, especially, you know, but again, that, that dinosaur taught some kids kid shit, you know? For the kids. Doing good for the kids. He's doing good for the kids. Like Mr. T says, for the kids. Doing this. What else is on that? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, other notable bad ideas from the 90s, at least, at least according to Time Magazine. So, yeah, Barney, Crystal Clear Pepsi. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> the Jerry Springer Show. Oh, man. I actually went to one of those back in the day. There you say that. Really? I did go to a taping there. It was at the NBC studios. And uh, yeah. Right. I, yeah, yeah. I think I ended up asking a question. There was nothing like that, Sean. And my favorite bad idea of the 20th century from the 90s, quote, Mr. Simpson, step forward and try on the glove. Oh, man. The, yeah, that's a terrible idea. The, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. You must acquit. Yes. Uh, it would be another 16 years before Sylvester Stallone brought back the franchise for a sixth film titled Rocky Balboa. What do you think of that one? I thought that was pretty good. I mean, you know, it's better than the fifth one, that's for sure. And I think he admitted as much, five. right? Didn't he say right. he did the film so that he, people would forget? I mean, he probably said it in jest, but he probably meant it too, that people would forget. No, I, can, I can see that happening. Yeah. In terms yeah. of films, yeah, five is definitely the worst. Like in, th- in terms of the first five, like one is a classic. Two, I think, is the best one. I think two it's is like, fantastic. Uh, for me, it goes. Yeah. yeah, it goes two, one, four, three, five. That's my order. Yeah, damn. No, I completely agree there. I think though, the thing is, this is the only Rocky film of those first, or, or of the Rocky saga, to not make money back at the box office, right? I think I read that on IMDb. That was B- he... No, the Rocky Five was the first. Rocky Five Rocky... did make was money, it... but it was it was the least grossing amongst the five. Oh, and then what I also read too, which is crazy. Do you know what his salary? Since you you give me a lot of trivia, Dave. Do you know what his salary was for the first one? Well, the budget was nine hundred and sixty thousand. So I would say his salary was like five. It was a little more than that. Twenty three thousand dollars. 1976. Yeah. I mean, right? yeah, the budget was less than a million. It's crazy. Yeah, and he got, I mean, he was talked down. Like, they were offering him way more money to begin with, but he was adamant about the fact that he wasn't going to sell the script and that he was going to play right. a part of Rocky. Like, that's exactly. part of the lore of this story. And right. Rocky yeah. Five, do you know what his salary was? It's in the millions. No, it's in the millions. Millions is a cool mill. Oh, sure. No, no. Yeah. At that point, way more, dude. Like... At that point, he, had, he was getting 15 mil for Rocky Five. 
That's a sixty-five thousand two hundred and seventeen percent increase. It's one of, which is one of the highest pay ranges in the history of Hollywood, right? Yeah, uh, yeah that's wild. But yeah, the, I think the the story of Rocky is just it's undeniable. It's very American. It's like the ultimate underdog mm-hmm. story. I think that's why many people relate to it and, and sort of you know love these films so much and why they continue to keep making them. You know, after the third mm-hmm. and fourth one, Stallone was one of the biggest you know superstars on the planet. So yeah, it was kind of like, sure. and at that point, I think what other movie franchises had had five? You know, besides like the Star Trek saga. Like there weren't very many franchises that, like Friday the Thirteenth, like the horror horror movies, and Police Academy. <laughs> that's about it. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he was riding high. I'm sure he thought this one was going to be a lot cooler than than how it was received. But there was a lot of a lot of things in the movie that like just didn't make sense to like as well. What I don't understand, Dave, is like he was managing Tommy Gunn for a good minute. They show the montage of Tommy winning all these fights. He got to 16 and 0. He got to like 17, 18 and 0. But at what point was he going to get, like, how come he wasn't making the money at that point? And he was on the cover of Ring Magazine. He was on the cover. He was like, you know, on ESPN. He should have been, he should have done, had a title fight already at that point, right? But it just seems like they even missed that part of the story. Like, it's like they had the right idea, I guess, but. They had the right in conflict somehow. And, that's kind of how it, I guess, had it. If somebody's that, you know, that dominating a sport and the, some of those knockouts you saw, you know, these guys are getting, like, literally looking like they're getting clotheslined. And, you know, these some of these brutal uppercuts. Right. Uh, yeah. You would think that he would have got a title shot at some point before Don King got his hands on him. Or, excuse me, Duke. Right. Wash. George Washington oh, yeah, Duke. George Washington Duke. And shout out to him, Richard Gant, for for that role too, because you know that that was a very that was great very spot on yep. performance of Don King. <laughs> it really was, yeah. Uh, let's see. So in 2015, Creed was released, a spinoff of the Rocky series with Apollo Creed's son Adonis, played by Michael B. Jordan. Creed received rave reviews and even got Stallone an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, I really enjoyed. Creed is fantastic. Michael really B. Good. Jordan, dude, he, dude that yeah. guy's the man. Yeah. yeah, he took. I mean, did you have you seen some of those uh, like behind the scene things? They show him like just mm. training, and he actually takes that one punch. Did work it's out. Awesome. I mean, yeah, a lot of training intense. goes into that. Yeah, those films are awesome. Oh uh, yeah, Creed two premiered three years later in 2018 with Adonis Creed fighting Victor Drago, the son of Ivan Drago, and Creed three is scheduled to be released on November 23rd with Michael B. Jordan making his directorial debut. Yeah, dude, the guy's making... Well, the guy's directing, dude. And, like, there's nothing that guy can't do. They left the franchise in good hands, for sure. They really did. Yeah, I don't think Stallone's going to be in this one. I think he wants to kind of take a step back and let Michael B. Jordan right on. take the franchise. But it, yeah, it man. Uh, hey, cool. did you know that in Rocky V, uh, Vander Holyfield was offered a role? Which role was he offered? Union Canes? No. So apparently Holyfield was offered a part in the movie, but turned down the part because they wanted him to lose. I think it was one of the characters that Tommy, uh, that Tommy Gunn ends up destroying during that montage. Yeah. And at the time, Holyfield was undefeated, and he didn't want to blemish on his record, right. even, wanna... even a fictional one. That would have been a bad omen. That's a, that was a pretty interesting bit of trivia that I, I was reading about. 
Actually, I didn't know that. Also, here's another bit of trivia. In the background, during the scene where Rocky's son is yelling at him on Christmas, there one of the Christmas cards mm-hmm. in the back has Rambo written on it. Nice. <laughs> nice. Oh, did you know that the ending was supposed to be completely different as well? Rocky was supposed to die in the end. Yeah, so they toyed with the idea of killing Rocky at the end of the film. So now the plan was Rocky would die in an ambulance on its way to the hospital with Adrian by his side. At the hospital, she yeah. she would have announced to the world his passing, and his spirit would live on in a final flashback of the famous scene of him running up the, the steps. But However, the studio ordered them to change it, because apparently that was what you know Stallone and the director wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, I say uh, even uh, yeah, Gene Siskel mentions that. Like, that's the ending that he would have preferred yeah, to see. Yeah, you know, it's a good thing they did it because they ended up making more of these films. But uh, right. yeah, that would have been really interesting to see if they, they did that, dude. Could you imagine? Right. But uh, I guess the studio was like, heroes they don't wanted more. They wanted more Rocky movies. They wanted a Rocky <laughs> 6 and 7. and They wanted a Rocky 8, Adrian's Revenge. Exactly. <laughs> oh, what, uh, oh, and one last note, Dave. We What's have up? to say... Because I don't think it's imperative that we touch on how great uh, Talia Shire is, you know, as as far oh, as sure. like in this character of Adrian, like she you... just absolutely kills it in this, you know, as this super loving, compassionate, you know, partner to Rocky. And you know, it would be remiss right. if we if we didn't touch on the fact that she just she's like one of the greatest wives in the history of cinema, man. Like you can't ask for a better partner. Right. You really see the evolution of her character from all of those movies. Um. Yeah. Like I'm a big fan of The Godfather. So yeah, huge. Yeah. Yeah. That scene in the street Shire. where they're where they're you know arguing and they're right in the middle of the street and mm-hmm. she's you know you could just tell that those fights that Rocky fought she she was hurt by him too you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I love Burt Young as Polly. Oh man. Yo yo yo. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he comes down the stairs. He's like, I don't think that's how it goes. Yo Polly. yo yo. <laughs> Why, uh, do you know why Mr. Carl Weathers wasn't, uh, like, featured in this film, by the way? Why he wasn't in five? Yeah. Because he died in four. Yeah, but I mean, like, you Why know. isn't he not, like, in a flashback? I'm like, because he died, Carlos. Well, yeah, but I mean. <laughs> but, like, why I, I not feel like they could have. Like, why not feature yeah. him in, like, flashbacks or montages? Yeah, because I guess yeah, I apparently know, I guess... at the end, one of those flashbacks when he's getting beat up. He was, there was supposed to be a, a flashback of Apollo Creed in there, you know, or Ivan yeah. or Ivan Drago. Right. Uh, yeah, but but uh, yeah, I would have loved to see more uh, more flashbacks of that. Oh, of course, yeah. Ding, okay. ding. ding. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and another thing, great catch. The uh, this was one of the only films to not end with that ding ding, right? Because they they end those first two, three. They end all these movies except for this one with the bell ring. With the fight, with the film, yeah. with the and then, and then in the ring, yeah. So, cool. yeah, man. Yeah. So Rocky the, Five was uh, it was a forgettable film. Was, you know, I mean, what, what it wasn't. What what's your real opinion, Dave? It's like so I was like, I, I put off watching Rocky Five for years because I have the reputation, and then when I ventured into started doing this podcast in terms of like research and development i watched it about a year and a half ago and i was thinking wow this this feels like a rocky movie a very good one no right now was i entertained yes 
Was this movie necessary? Absolutely not. Critics were not very kind to this film. And if you're a Rocky fan, I think you're pretty disappointed by it overall, especially the ending, dude. Like, father somehow shows up and he's. Oh, you know, Carmine, yeah. blessing, and then I love it when he does that. But yeah, it's just like, why is the father at the at this brawl? It's three in the morning. You have to imagine that, like, you know, they went out with Polly that night after the fight. That fight takes place at nighttime. That fight probably is then. You know, you have to imagine it's super late. And somehow all these people are outside. Father Carmine probably got woken up by the melee. Because, you know, the rectory is right around the corner. He's in, it's in the neighborhood. So he probably heard the commotion. And yeah. he was like, all right, I'll see what's going on. And he's yeah. still a member of the neighborhood. Maybe he's concerned. He wants to know what's going on. So like, what a... And I didn't think about Father Carmine. I didn't think about Father Carmine in that aspect. It's kind of hard to miss this guy at the end, and then Ralph cracks a joke. Oh, I love it when he does that. It's yeah. Like, oh, man, that's funny. It's just uh, it's low hanging fruit. You know what I mean? It really it's is. Not, yeah. It was unnecessary. Yeah, good times. I'm glad they made more. I'm glad they made more. That's for sure. Yeah, it took a while first. Yeah, Stallone. I think really wanted to get it right. If he's gonna if he wanted to do another one, because he's afraid of that making another one like rocky five so he, he took a while but i think he got it right the next time around. yeah they figured it out oh, all right so yeah that uh, about wraps it up for this episode of sports in the 90s we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we've enjoyed making it follow us on twitter instagram facebook and feel free to subscribe to us on reddit at the sports in the 90s subreddit each episode has its own discussion page on Reddit, so feel free to post any comments about any episode or the subject matter. Join us next episode when we talk about the John Madden video game franchise. Oh, nice. Yeah, dude. Nice. Just in time. You know, preseason football is around the corner. Yeah, football's right around the corner. Uh, that'll be more you than me. We'll be talking about John Madden's career as well as the history of the video game and the impact it has had. Yeah, John Madden was one of a kind, man. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that's going to be a good one. Yeah, for sure, dude. For sure. Uh, talking about the Madden curse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As it's a well-known thing. Yeah, I'll break that down. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode. Until then, I'm Carlos Vigil. And I'm Dave Smith, reminding you to think when you drink and to reduce, reuse, recycle. Thank you, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sports of the 90s. They get scared when I pull my mic.